0: Thank you for tuning in for the third part of our lecture series, Marriage and the Family Today, sponsored by the Catholic Information Center. This fall, the church will experience two significant events related to marriage and the family. Shortly, Philadelphia will host the World Meeting of Families. Then in October, the 14th General Assembly of the Synod of Bishops on the Family will convene in Rome. In recognition of this important time in the church, we have been gathering for a three-part lecture series to explore the most critical issues for marriage and family life today. In the first week, we explored the pastoral and doctrinal questions surrounding the indissolubility of marriage. During the second session, we discussed children, specifically looking at the effects that artificial reproductive technologies and divorce have on them. This last lecture will be a conversation on gender and homosexuality. Here in Washington, we are fortunate to have the John Paul II Institute, a wealth of philosophers and theologians who are thinking through the essential questions of marriage and family faculty members from the John Paul II Institute are the featured speakers in our lecture series. I'm delighted to introduce Professor David L. Schindler and Professor David S. Crawford. Professor Schindler has taught as a tenured professor at the University of Notre Dame and at Mount St. Mary's University. Since 1982 he has been editor-in-chief of the North American edition of Communio International Catholic Review. Professor Schindler is the author of numerous books and has published over 75 articles translated into nine languages in the areas of metaphysics, philosophical issues in biology and biotechnology, and the relation of theology, philosophy, and culture. Professor Schindler was also appointed by Pope John Paul II as a consultant to the Pontifical Council for the Laity from 2002 to 2007. Dr. Crawford teaches and writes in the areas of fundamental moral theology, bio and sexual ethics, marriage, family, and law. Recent articles have addressed issues such as human action, natural law, homosexuality, condoms and HIV AIDS, and the anthropological implications of modern civil law. He is currently engaged in research concerning morality and nature, as well as the theological and anthropological issues arising under modern legal theory, particularly as they concern marriage, family, and the person. Before we get to the lecture, I'd like to let our audience know that due to technical difficulties, the first few seconds of Dr. Crawford's remarks were unfortunately not recorded. We apologize for this inconvenience and hope that you enjoy the lecture
1: directions um, uh, for possible um, answers. And and so that's the substance of what I'd like to say to you um, today, is to try and answer um, these two questions. Um, So uh, I have to begin, of course. This brings me to uh, a preliminary uh, qualification. Because of the deeply personal and existential nature of our topic, it is easy to confuse criticism of ideas with attacks with criticism of ideas with attacks on people. I imagine that just about everyone in this room has been touched in one way or another, directly or indirectly, through their friends and relatives or even their own personal experience by same-sex attraction. So again, my purpose this evening is only to criticize a set of commonly held uh, ideas and not to attack any person. So I I appeal only to reason and our shared humanity in this. So to address uh, my opening questions, I will structure the rest of this talk as a presentation of four theses. And so here's here's my first thesis. And I'll, I'll deal with them in order. So here's my first thesis. So my first thesis is, gay marriage and the broader conceptions of sexuality confronting us today express more or less perfectly the anthropological implications of main currents of modernity from its very beginnings. Hence, those of us who seek to resist these developments are constantly banging our heads, it would seem, against these basic assumptions. So this is a problem. However, it's not the biggest one. For we, too, are moderns. And being unable to step outside of our own skins We ourselves often employ reasoning and categories that presuppose the very logic that has produced the problematic understanding of sexuality with which we endeavor to contend. This is why, from a Catholic point of view, the issues remain so intractable. And why even among Christians who seek to be faithful to the order inscribed in God's creation, um, even for them, the issues are so difficult to manage or even to think about clearly. Many have pointed to the centrality of progress uh, to our modern psyche. We almost automatically assume that history is primarily the story of our scientific, technological, political, and juridical progress. But what is progress? At the dawn of modernity, Francis Bacon famously sought to improve the human condition by means of a new science which he explicitly opposed to the ancients and medieval emphasis on uh, contemplation or, of unchanging or non-contingent being. For Bacon, the purpose of knowing reality is to put to use for the material advancement of humanity, is to put it to use, to put reality to use for the uh, material advantage, advancement of humanity. In effect, we improve the human condition by constructing or producing our world. Hence, for Bacon, the given. That is to say, what comes from nature and creation serves as material for human construction. As Professor Hanby suggested last week, this emphasis on making and constructing um, brings with it a revolution in the way we conceive reality as a whole. If the purpose of knowledge is to construct and produce things, then in fact, what we know is what we have produced or constructed. What we do not produce is therefore, strictly speaking, unintelligible. Leo Strauss has put it this way in the context of Hobbes's political thought. We understand only what we make. This is a quote. "We we, We understand only what we make. Since we do not make the natural beings, they are, strictly speaking, unintelligible. According to Hobbes, this fact is perfectly compatible with the possibility of natural science. Man can guarantee the actualization of wisdom, since wisdom is identical with free construction. But wisdom cannot be free construction if the universe is intelligible. Man can guarantee the actualization of wisdom, not in spite of, but because of, the fact that the universe is unintelligible. Man can be sovereign only because there is no cosmic support for his humanity. Since the universe is unintelligible, And since control of nature does not require the understanding of nature, there are no knowable limits to his conquest of nature." That's the end of the quote. This passage might seem prima facie wrong. We assume that it is precisely uh, the modern sciences that tell us what things are in 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 the most certain way. Yet when we focus on what we can do with things, we necessarily focus our attention on their mechanical aspects and properties. We no longer view things in terms of what they are, but rather in ter- terms of the functional interaction of their parts. When our focus is then shifted to one of those parts, parts or properties, it too is then analyzed in its parts, into its parts and processes, and so forth ad infinitum. If we pursue this far enough, say, to subatomic particles, mass, energy, and so forth, we run out of road and are confronted with the basic unintelligibility of reality in toto. This ultimate un- unintelligibility, however, is not disadvantageous because we are able nevertheless to construct our world. In fact, to follow Strauss- Strauss's point to the end, we are liberated to construct our world precisely because things are inherently meaningless. A couple of implications flow out of these developments. First. If the underlying unintelligibility of things is a precondition for absolute free construction, then given and natural meanings oppose free construction. In other words, nature, truth, and the given subtly oppose human freedom and self-realization. Second, if beyond their mechanical properties things are unintelligible in themselves, they also are unable to point to anything beyond themselves. They can have no depth of meaning because they are reduced to sheer facticity. They lose their fundamentally sacramental meaning. It is therefore useless gibberish to speak of their inner truth. In the apparently kinder and gentler Locke, we find an analogous desire to construct our world in the social and political sphere. We counter political oppression. And just as importantly for Locke, we multiply wealth by constructing our political, economic, and legal orders. This is what the idea of a social contract is about. For human communities to be fully rational, that is to say fully intelligible, they need to be constructed by us. We can see this even in relation to his conception of pre-contractual societies such as the family. Even those ostensibly pre-contractual societies or communities bear a striking resemblance to the contractual society to which they are preliminary. Where Locke does not represent them in this way, they seem to veer towards patriarchal absolutism. That is to say, toward the arbitrary and non-rational forms of society he seeks to diffuse. From this rapid overview, we can now begin to see some answers to the question, what is progress? In both the scientific, technological sense and in the social, political, legal sense, Progress can be viewed primarily as a form of liberation. Progress liberates us from political oppression, the limits of our material condition, poverty, and so forth. But as we have seen, ingredient in these liberations is a darker one, liberation from given truths and inherent meanings and from from form and nature. This narrative of progress is extremely powerful. It deeply imbues the way we understand ourselves And yet it places the idea of progress beyond the question of good and evil. There is never bad progress, only bad outcomes and bad deployments of progress. Bad uses of iPhones versus good uses of iPhones. And then that a particular outcome could be judged bad can only be determined in relation to its tendency to contribute or not to liberation. What I have already said is enough to suggest its relevance to issues like gay marriage and the new sexuality. First, insofar as this narrative opposes the given, the human body presents a problem. It is precisely the sort of given that challenges the modern and liberal obsession with progress and liberation. It tends to define me as a man or woman, as having this role or that in social and family life, as having these relations or those, Yet these human relations are highly specified in sexual terms. Because sexual spe- specification would seem to precede any act of choice on my part, it eventually appears to be an intolerable limitation to freedom. Here we re encounter the deeper logic pointed to by Strauss. For us to be free, the body must be understood in essentially mechanistic and subpersonal terms. It must be treated as lacking in its visible structures and its expression of of form, any sign or sacramental character pointing beyond itself. Hence, we must conceive the body's sexual dimorphism as a material substrate that can only serve as a context or platform for genuinely human life and actions. Let's look at the flip side of this reductive biologism. If the body is no longer available as a sign or sacrament of the person, then it cannot serve to teach us about the truth of our inclinations and desires. Indeed, following the logic pointed to by Strauss, there can be no inner truth of desire or inclination to which the body might refer. Following the logic, inclination or desire must itself be reduced to fundamentally unintelligible facticity. As such, it cannot be questioned. Without the body as a sign of the interior truth of my desires, a truth that is the beginning of virtue, I cannot see that desire has an inner truth. It simply is. Desire or inclination cannot therefore be brought into conformity with or placed in the context of any true and transcendental identity, but must itself become the building blocks of my identity. What matters then is is fidelity to this identity. We can also see the implications for human community and civil society. First of all, political and legal doctrine must express itself in the currency and language of freedom. Rather than given truths about origin or destiny, or even about what is or what is true, the current gay marriage debate in the courts is a perfect example. The only conceptual categories available to courts rest almost entirely on the question of rights, that is to say, individual liberties. Yet the modern legal language of rights, even when they are considered natural rights, is an expression of the modern rejection of the given, since the concept of rights emphasizes the individual's freedom of choice in some particularized domain, for example, speech or assembly, religion, marriage, and so forth. Hence, the recent public and legal debate concerning gay marriage has little to do with the question of what marriage is in its very nature and everything to do with what we think the implication of freedom in a liberal society is. Hence, even conservatives treat the issue as though it could be decided, not on its merits, but according to principles of democracy or federalism. Public and legal reasoning simply cannot make sense of what is questions. Rather, such questions always have to be restated in the the grammar of liberation and rights. My point is not that modernity and liberal political and legal thought are rotten to the core. Indeed, the framework might work fine for deciding, say, tax policy or the allocation of highway funding. But in the marriage and gender debates, we are talking about what constitutes the essentially human. Yet if this is true, then shouldn't public and legal discourse include the question of the essentially human? If it does not, we will always risk tacitly answering the question without ever having known we were taking it up in the first place. Because the logic I have just described runs so deep in our veins, to oppose progress as represented in the new sexuality is to oppose the fundamental movement of history toward liberation. It therefore always will appear to be small-minded, irrational, immoral, oppressive, bigoted. With this longish discussion of my first thesis, I can now present the other three more, more quickly, more rapidly. So here's my second thesis. The dominant language and conceptual categories for discourse concerning sexuality are phony. And therefore, the characteristic pattern of debate surrounding gay marriage and the new sexuality is also phony. And everyone, in fact, knows it. The second thesis is phrased somewhat provocatively. So let me explain what I mean by phony. Advocates for gay marriage argue that it represents a mere extension of an existing right to a newly recognized minority. This point is emphasized or implied, for example, by practically every court that has ruled on this issue. In fact, this argument is so plausible to so many people can only indicate that we have been thinking of marriage for a while now as something very much like gay marriage. At its root, this mere extension argument plays on the ambiguities I've already presented. The body is inescapably sexualized, and, the sexuality, and its, ex, its sexuality is always and only an expression of either maleness or femaleness, which is the bedrock human truth of sexual dimorphism. Indeed, the maleness and femaleness of the body can only exist, can only be intelligible, in their mutual, mu- mutuality and correlation. The male body only makes sense, is only intelligible, in view of the female body and vice versa. If the male body is a sign of our humanity and of the individual's identity, it can only be so in view of its correlation with the female body and its uh, possibility as a, a, a source of human identity and nature. They go together by nature. Without this mutual reference, along with its procreative meaning, there simply could not be male and female. Now bearing in mind what we have just said about the body, let us consider the central concepts of homosexuality, heterosexuality, and sexual orientation. In order for the mere extension argument to be plausible, man-woman couples and the pairings of two men or two women must be conceived as equivalent in all pertinent ways. Correlative terms, such as homosexual and heterosexual, express precisely this equivalency, or this interchangeability. This is because they are conceived as co-equal variants within a more general category, sexual orientation. Now, the concept sexual orientation, along with its variants, homosexual and heterosexual, expresses the idea that sexual inclination can run just as reasonably toward one of the same sex as to one of the opposite sex. Hence the relationship between sexual desire or inclination and the body's sexual dimorphism is rendered arbitrary. Just to be clear, I say that this relationship is arbitrary because the concept of orientation is intended to express the idea that, say, a man's sexual desires or romantic inclinations could run just as naturally or normally to another man as to a woman. That they do run either toward members of the same sex or members of the opposite sex is a function only of the happenstance that this man has one orientation rather than the other. Neither possibility, according to the concept, is more or less normal or natural, even if statistically they are mismatched. Therefore, that his inclinations run in one direction rather than another is arbitrary they could just as reasonably, naturally, and normally run the other direction. Hence, the relationship between one's orientation, that is to say the direction of one's desires and the body's sexual dimorphism, is only arbitrary. That I have a man's body has no real bearing on whether we should consider it natural or normal for for my orientation or inclinations to run toward the same sex or the opposite sex. But notice what this means. The concept of orientation of individual human beings having differing orientations is intended to describe the foundation of sexuality as a whole. We all of us, so the theory goes, desire as we do because of our various orientations. Hence, marriage as we had always understood it becomes heterosexual marriage. That is to say, one of the possible types of marriages. Notice that this, what this implies. Under the concept of sexual orientation, that a given man and woman are sexually or romantically drawn to each other cannot be due to its being natural for a man and a woman to be drawn to each other. To put it differently, they are not attracted to each other because they are a man and a woman, let alone because the male and female bodies naturally go together. Rather, that a man and a woman are drawn to each other is due to their just happening to have one of the possible orientations, namely heterosexuality. Now all this all this leads to some paradoxes. If as I said, if as I said, the body's sexual dimorphism cannot be escaped, this inescapability is true even in the concept of homosexuality itself. The body's sexual dimorphism is implicit, for example, in homosexual acts. After all, there are no sexual acts whatsoever but for the sexual body, and the body is only sexual insofar as it is dimorphic. That is to say, only in and through the obvious physiological correlation of the male and female bodies. Yet at the same time, homosexuality declares that this sexual correlation of the male and female bodies, their dimorphism, is personally and not, uh, person, personally non-determinative and indeed meaningless as a source of knowledge about the meaning and proper order of sexual desire. But this means that homosexuality and homosexual acts can only be parasitic, on the body's natural sexual dimorphism. In effect, homosexuality must merely make use of the sexually dimorphic body, which must now be conceived as an essentially p- subpersonal physiological or material reality, presumably an accident of, a, uh, accident of evolutionary biology. The, the body must become, as I said earlier, only a context or material substrate for sexual acts. Hence, we have the strange paradox that homosexuality must, on the one hand, make use of a sexual body precisely as sexual, and yet simultaneously treat the body as only materially significant, precisely as sexual. Unfortunately, the paradoxes do not end here. As we saw, the concept of orientation aspires to explain sexual desire as a whole, exhaustively and universally. In doing so, it drains even the man-woman relationship of its claim to rootedness in nature. Hence, oddly enough, it treats male and female bodies, even in the heterosexual relationship, as simply the context or material substrate necessary for sexual relations and acts. In other words, even the man-woman sexual relationship is conceived as parasitic on the sexualized body. Strange paradox, indeed. As I said, this language and the conceptual categories it represents are phony. They simply cannot express what is true about human beings because they manifestly fragment the person. I also said that at a deep level, everyone knows this fact. The power of the modern paradigm of free construction, its necessary reduction of the body to its machine-like and subpersonal dimensions, its understanding of freedom as indifferent choice among alternatives, is neither natural nor really tenable. In order for us to perpetuate, the narrative of free construction of our world, we have to tell ourselves lies. We do this because we cannot conceive of a way to talk about things as they really are without impinging on what we take freedom to be. To impinge on freedom in this way is beyond the pale of acceptable public discourse. So we are reduced to a public language that we know does not express truth and a private language which ultimately must be either brought into conformity with the official but untruthful public language, or be reduced to whispers and mumblings. So my third thesis is very short. And it flows directly out of the first two. The narrative of progress and the free construction of our world aided by phony language and categories implies that there is no such thing as a natural human relationship or a natural human community, but rather that all relationships are radically based in law. Once the body and its procreative potential has been reduced to the mechanical and the biological, then what were previously thought to be natural motherhood or natural fatherhood are now thought of as biological motherhood or fatherhood. But the biological as we understand it in our world is only modernity's ersatz version of nature. It is nature that has been reduced to the interaction of functional parts. It is, in other words, the replacement for nature of an intellectual culture that has rejected the idea of, tr- of the truth of things in themselves, of their symbolic or sacramental meanings. It is the residue of, an, of natural relationships in a Lockean understanding of human community as essentially contractual free construction, that is to say, as not natural, but as radically rooted in will acts. Hence, natural familial relationships are biological relationships mediated by what really matters, which is law? As we saw, as we see in the growing trend of surrogacy and sperm donation, the biological can be severed ever so easily, and what really uh, and what really counts are acts of will and uh, will and uh, me- as mediated by law. That it can be severed so easily is proof certain of its inadequacy to the properly personal and human. But this means at base that all relationships are ultimately legal relationships. It means, for example, as we have uh, now seen in numerous court decisions, that the civil institution of marriage and its legal structure are not to be understood as buttresses and supports of a natural or pre-legal relationship. No, it means that the relationship is conceived, ab initio, as legal, as having its source in civil law. Something similar can be said of the parent-child relationship which has been reduced to the biological plus the legal. Neither of these, nor both of them together, is a natural relationship or community. In any case, as we saw, the biological falls away altogether in the face of law. My fourth and final thesis can simply be stated in view of what has already been said. This elimination of natural relationships and communities implies a mostly invisible yet growing form of totalitarianism. I can leave this last thesis as self-explanatory, since, in fact, the reduction of all pre-legal relations and community into law is not a sign of, is not a sign of totalitarianism. It is its very definition. Thank you.
2: OK. Um. The question, we all know the question of uh, body and gender is a very difficult one to discuss publicly today, that the issues are very intense and so on. And, and uh, somebody reminded me this morning, you know, that uh, that's what Jesus did when, when uh, uh, in, in that sort of situation. He went back to first principles, you know, the law of Moses and divorce. And, and he said, well, that's not the way it was in the beginning and started by... Going back to the beginning, and that's sort of what I want to do. And and this will not be a rounded uh, sort of lecture. There's really too much to cover. What I really want to do is to is to sort of give the architecture of the problem. That is, the first some uh, first principles, and uh, uh, what the issues are that arise uh, around those uh, for discussion. So. There'll be about a half dozen uh, principles here. First, let me uh, begin just uh, yesterday. Well, there are are two texts from Pope Pope Francis that are helpful here from Laudato Laudato Si, paragraph 155. Let me just read this as a general context where I want to uh, start. Human ecology also implies uh, another profound reality, the relationship between human life and the moral law which is inscribed in our nature and is necessary for the creation of more dignified environment. So it's the encyclical on creation in the environment. Pope Benedict XVI spoke of an ecology of man based on the fact that man too has a nature that he must respect and that he cannot manipulate at will. It is enough to recognize that our body itself establishes us in a direct relationship with the environment and with other living beings. The acceptance of our bodies as God's gift is vital for welcoming and accepting the entire world as a gift from the Father and our common home. Whereas thinking that we enjoy absolute power over our own bodies turns often subtly into thinking that we enjoy absolute power over creation. Learning to accept our body, to care for it, and to respect its fullest meaning is an essential element of any genuine human ecology valuing one's own body in its femininity or masculinity is necessary if I am going to be able to recognize myself in an encounter with someone who is different. In this way, we can joyfully accept the specific gifts of another man or woman, the work of God, the creator, and and find mutual enrichment. It is not a healthy attitude which would seek to cancel out sexual difference because we know longer how to confront it and he said uh, yesterday, a statement anticipating the world meeting of families that a, a new covenant or alliance of man and woman would seem not only necessary but also strategic for the emancipation of peoples from their colonization by money. And he went on this covenant or alliance must once again guide politics, the economy and civil coexistence. It decides the habitability of the earth the transmission of the sentiment of life and the bonds of memory and hope. Of this covenant, the matrimonial familial community of man and woman is its generative grammar, its golden bond, so to speak. Faith draws upon knowledge of God's creation. Uh, Entrusted to the family, he entrusted to the family not only the care of intimacy for its own sake, but also the project of making the entire world domestic very interesting thought. Um, uh, so it is precisely the family that is at the origin and the base of this worldwide culture that saves us. It saves us from many attacks, many forms of destruction and many forms of colonization, for insta- instance by money and ideologies that so threaten the world. Now that's uh, Pope Francis and I cite that to, to give a context and also it seems to me it recalls what John Paul II. <coughs> Um, uh, always emphasized, beginning with uh, in familiaris consortio, and a number of times, that the future of human civilization passes through the family. By which he meant not that it, there's an instrument of reproducing children, we need uh, children for a civilization, but it's necessary for the inner form of a civilization, and it has a privileged p- place in that. And sort of what I have to say here goes to that. Uh, that idea of cent- centrality, and some of this will repeat in a di- slightly different uh, idiom, perhaps, uh, what Professor Crawford was uh, discussing. And the f- the first point that I want to make, so six points, and I-, I try to emphasize one or two points and then quickly qualify it and, and uh, get through this, and then you can, I'm sure, you'll have a few questions, so the two of us will try to handle those. Okay. But the first thing I want to say is that the question of body and gender is most fundamentally is all the questions of our culture a question of God. That needs to be stated over and over again. And what does that mean? Uh, you can put that another way. It has to do with the notion of creation. Are we creatures or not? And uh, that question will never be, uh, any judgment about the body and gender uh, will never be neutral with respect to some judgment as to whether were from God or not and what that implies. Uh, Professor Crawford mentioned some texts in this regard. Cardinal Ratzinger in one of his, uh, Joseph Ratzinger in one of his early books in the late 60s, Introduction to Christianity, distinguished as sort of a difference between a modern ancient worldview and basically in terms of the idea of creation. Uh, so, so really what I want, let me quote that first, but the, and uh, in, in what is it that, It's not that it all reduces to that, but it captures it. That in the ancient world, being was good as given. That being was was ends qua, or or, or something was good, bonum qua ends. The fact that it was meant that it had an inherently good order. And what happens in modernity, shift in modernity, you locate locate that 16th, 17th century, that being is good quia factum, that is, being becomes good insofar as there's some intervention that man corrects it, corrects the order to make it good. And that really is a, a key judgment. So the, the first point is the, the notion of creation, are, things, are the things of nature human and non-human at root? Good is given in the act of creation by God, or are they good only insofar as the human being intervenes intervene somehow to correct them? and make them good, and I think this runs through all the questions that we're talking about here. So the task in, in this uh, creational uh, understanding approach to reality is to, to always to first listen attentively to the reality of the world in its, its naturally given order, and then the remaking and reconstructing has to be keyed in some integrated fashion to that. And I think paragraph 36 of Gaudium et is interesting to keep in mind here that affirms that when when God is forgotten, the creature ceases to be intelligible. I think that's a very nice way to to get at this, that that with the pressure of modernity, without an awareness of a giver, the the, uh, reality tends to be something that then it falls to us to construct in some way, to modify, to do something with. And there are theological reasons for that. I mean, the loss of the integrity of nature in, in, uh, in uh, Protestantism and Calvinism, Puritanism, and so on. I mean, there's a lot to talk about there. But the, so the first thing is, I want to say that this question, in the in the deepest sense, is a matter of theology, uh, anthropology, and spirituality. If you want to use those terms, before it's a moral issue, and it really is a moral issue, only in that context. Okay. Then the, the, sec- the second point is about the nature of the body, and this is vastly oversimplified, as all these points will be. Then in the question period, perhaps can refine them a bit. But, and Professor Crawford got into that a bit. I would simply say, for our, for our purposes, you can talk about two dominant views of the body in the West. In the, the, the pre-modern, the one that's taken up uh, in Catholicism, Aristotelian to view, I would, uh, for our purposes here, uh, turn that, the uh, understanding of the body, as inherently symbolic, and never purely physicalist. The body, uh, and the other Descartes, and I'll I'll come to that in a second, the modern view. But what I mean by uh, that is that there's a unity between the body and soul, and this implies that the body always reveals the soul and thereby reveals the meaning of the person. So bodily order is never purely physical or biologistic. We don't say, for example, stop hitting my body. We say, stop hitting me. When we hug our children, we are embracing them. It's not a matter merely of uh, using our bodies as tools for contact. Uh, So we could say, uh, John Paul II uh, uh, adopts this language, it comes in a certain way from Marcel, but uh, rooted in St. Thomas. We're present, we we really are our bodies, except, uh, albeit, more than our bodies. The human person is him or herself revealed by, in and through the body. So the body has a sign-like character. It expresses the human as a sign that effectively communicates the human. Bodily shape then is never merely a container, which is hiding something inside. Okay, then on the other hand is a a, a view that has prevailed in modernity, uh, is Descartes, and that's not not that's the only view. But I think there's a Cartesian thread that goes really continues on into postmodernism, which is that body is essentially raw material. And, and the, uh, insofar as we talk about a dual reality at all in the human being, there are two different things. You have the body, uh, which is physical, mechanistic, and then you have the soul, which is something other than that. And, and therefore, you call it a mechanistic view, a ghost in the machine, so to speak. You've heard that language. So the, the body is no longer a bearer of spiritual order. It's no longer a sign of the soul it's only its instrument at best. So it's not symbolic, and we can say that it's more like dumb stuff, it's a dumb instrument. So if you wanted to kind of summarize the difference between the two, it'd be more proper to say I have a body rather than that I am a body, albeit more than a body. So you could say it's dumb stuff or or a, a dumb raw material apt for use or manipulation. For whatever purpose, and and what you would say on uh, on the other view is that the the body is uh, on the on the ancient view the body is apt first for presence, for personal presence. And even though there can be a use uh, uh, that's uh, legitimate, that's never at the expense of what is first an intrinsic presence. So on this view of, of Descartes body and gender to anticipate where we're going. Body and gender are two different things. I mean, the body, when we speak of the sexual difference, typically we refer more to the biological aspect. And when we talk about gender difference, we refer most often to the psychological. And in a Cartesian view, the body is just dumb stuff, separate from the other, and the other is sort of a free-floating exercise. It's a matter of uh, free-floating uh, exercise of uh, choice and, and uh, so forth, okay. So then, and, and in that ancient view, the image of God is, is in, in some sense, the whole body image is God, but really primarily through the spirit and the spiritual faculties, you know, the spiritual soul and its faculties intellect intelligence, primarily the individual person. Now, what happens in the third point is uh, John Paul II. What's distinctive about John Paul II, and and, and we get into you, you know I'm I mean it's almost irresponsible to try to distill this quickly you know with the richness that's here. But uh, uh, what what I would say at root is this shift in John Paul II. His shift is uh, the it, he accents now the. Taking these principles and adhering to them, Aristotelian Thomism, and the body is symbolic, the shift now is that the symbolism is more, uh, the accent now is on the meaning of the, hu- the human being as love. That is to say, instead of the emphasis on an individual Im- imaging the one God, uh, there's an openness to the fact that, you know, the God is a, co- a divine communio personarum in the Trinity and in human beings, then, it is community. So what's involved in that? Okay, so that's, I would say, this is what, I mean, there are a lot of different terms used for this in John Paul II, but it's, it's, a, it's a really momentous shift, but not by way of rejection, but by way of deepening and transforming. So it takes that over, but now the emphasis, the starting point is love and, and communion. Okay, so, This then is where it gets really interesting, and I'll probably shorten this more so that uh, I can just respond to questions rather than just to say too much and not enough about some of these uh, uh, issues. But so the the question is, uh, okay, it's the socialness of the human being, okay, great. But uh, the point is it's not just the socialness of the human being, he gives uh, the priority here uh, is not just generalized socialness, but the specific socialness community, which is a family, or marriage and family, a man and a woman. So the order of creation, you have uh, an individual created in, in immediately then, Adam, and Adam is alone and needs a companion. It's two, and, and so forth. What, what, so the, to sort of cut to the chase here, uh, why the question there is, and, and, and it really starts to move us closer to the question of why uh, the gender question is, is so fundamental to everything else. It's really a, a, a kind of fundamental, the fundamental form, most basic form of the question of being in our time, that is the nature of creation. Why is the, I read some, some text here from, well, let me just say at the outset, uh, uh, to, to cut to the chase, and then, and then some of the texts of, of, uh, of Wojtyla, that uh, the, the point is that you have a really unique manifestation in the meaning of community, and in a certain sense, you have this almost a paradigmatic, a unique paradigm for uh, the Trinity in marriage and family. How so? There are two key points there, it seems to me. And one is that it's the, it's, it's the simultaneity, the two aspects, is you have total unity, so a unity that includes the body. And it's a, it's a unity on all levels, which maintains the distinctness of the two. And the second is it's fruitful, so it's creative. So what you have is really, and, and I think this is the heart of the, the meaning of uh, John Paul II, You have. Uh, unity and creativity, and in a certain sense, and that's why the family becomes the fullness of that, because with fruitfulness now, you have uh, three. You have um, a a community. So uh, we can examine that, but that's, it seems to me, the heart of the matter, that you have the unique instance in the cosmos where uh, you can have this complete unity which is creative, and notice the creativity. We often, our culture talks about, we often talk about a child as almost a burden, or at least an object of our desires and so on. Instead of seeing the full meaning of a child as a subject, there's no greater creative act than, than the procreation of a child, why? There's no other creative act whose uh, uh, result is another subject of creativity. That that's absolutely. You can write a book, but it's not a subject of creativity. That's a profound thing, and it would. It would we need to uh, ponder that, the, the the weight and the beauty of a child in that context. Okay, so that is, the, it seems to me, the heart of the hard matter. But then you 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 immediately have the problem because he wants to then. John Paul II wants to bring this into the imaging of God. Well, what are the obvious problems? The obvious problem, and why we shy away from that, and that is there's no sex or gender in God. Okay, so how do we do that? And It seems to me this, the crux of the matter is, is to see that, there, on the one hand, the order of love in God is really imaged in the order of love in this relationship, but... it's it's qua order of love that you have the imaging of God. It doesn't mean that the body is, that 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 implies that there's a body in God. It implies that in the order of of persons, this unique kind of person in the cosmos, which is embodied, that order of love takes the form of an embodiment, uh, which is expressed in the sexual difference and in uh, procreation. Do, Do you see the difference there? So there, there, there is not in there. There is in God the order of love, which in embodied persons takes takes form as the sexual difference and sexual difference and the gender distinction. So uh, there, and there are many texts that uh, John Paul II, I, I'll read these from Familiaris Consortio, as an incarnate spirit that is a soul which expresses itself in a body. In a body informed by an immortal spirit, man is called to love in his unified totality. Love includes the human body, and bo- the body is made uh, a sharer in love. God in him is love and in himself, he lives a mystery of personal love and communion, creating the human race in his own image. God inscribed in the humanity of man and woman the vocation thus the capacity and responsibility of love and communion. So you see the delicate language there, uh, that it's integrated into, but he's not simply saying, I mean, he's, he's got to keep the infinite difference between uh, God and creature. But he's drawing the body, he's showing in the order of creation a new revelation of the depths of the meaning of spirit. Okay. In and through this new cre- uh, creation, which is the body. Okay. Uh, so that's the, the the heart of the matter there, and that so that intimacy coupled with the creativity is at the the heart of uh, the 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 primary sort of the paradigm for human love and that's in it, that community is the community that's a sine qua non that gives form to the rest of the cosmos it's so it's so important to see the how important that is when the um, compendium for the social doctrine of the church, uh, it's its re- really striking because um, in terms of this, the centrality of the marriage and family in the order of things, this primitive form of love, uh, uh, first of all, and this is paragraph tw- 26, the compendium for the social doctrine of the church, it said, God freely confers being in life on everything that exists. Man and woman created in his image and likeness are for that reason called to be the visible sign and the effective instrument of divine gratuitousness in the garden where God has placed them as cultivators and custodians of the goods of creation. And then he goes, the, 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 catech- the compendium goes on in the next paragraph and shows that original sin first is it's the order of religion of sin. So the sin that's recapitulated in every subsequent sin is given in the breakdown of that original order and that's spelled out in paragraph 27. That the the first is Adam uh, does not respect his filial meaning before God, disobedience. That immediately sows discord between the man and the woman And the the verbs there, control and desire, are used differently. And in that disorder, there's immediately a disorder imparted to uh, the rest of creation. And then you have the disturbance uh, within creation as a whole. So it concludes by saying, I mean, that's that's a very radical statement. And it has a lot of uh, depth to it that we need to ponder. But this paragraph uh, concludes by saying, It is in this original estrangement. So this Adam in relation to God, then the man and the woman, and and then creation. And and that's recapitulated in all forms of sin. So it says, it, it is in this original estrangement that are to be sought the deepest roots of all the evils that afflict social relations between people of all the situations in economic and political life that attack the dignity of the person that assail justice and solidarity. That's a very radical uh, statement, but you see how centri- central this is. Okay, then the question of what is the uh, sex- sexual difference, and I'll be very brief on this, that it is, it, it, first of all, it's um, the sexual difference and the, the sexual difference in the gender are, are, there's a unity, those are indissoluble even though they're distinct, okay, for the reasons I gave early, earlier on this conception of the unity of body and soul. And this, the uh, a second point is that the bodily shape itself is an index to the form of love, because there's a unity there. And, and the bodily shape, and, and that means not only, you know, uh, uh, the difference in our earlobes and so on, it has to do with the, the, the body, the sexual part of the body. Why? Because that goes to the, this root of the complete intimacy between a man and a woman and the fruitfulness, it's a, a, a cre, cre, creativity. So now, what we, the point here, that what follows here then is that the gender, the sexual difference in gender, its first meaning then comes relative to the order of love. That's the context in which we have to put it, and that's why it's so basic. So in other words, that this image of God now is that the sexual organs and the gender expression, and that is not reducing by, um, gender to biology, it's rather spirit incorporating the body. It isn't a reduction to the body. It's, it's giving new meaning to the body, but the point is the, the shape of, uh, uh, the, the body has to do with the order of love, which means it has to do with giving and receiving, and, and a giving and receiving that is fruitful. And all I'll say here is, uh, I mean, there is so much talked about this, and I, I just don't want to uh, jump in at some, you know, uh, truncated way. But the key is to see that there's a kind of interiority, exteriority, or giving and receiving, and the key is to see, it seems to me, that that, that um, has to do with uh, their symbols of the giving and receiving of love in a different order. So the gender distinction is not, if we say complementarity, it's not you have a half and you have another half and they make a whole. It's rather you have two wholes, They're, remember the man and the woman, uh, uh, they divide uh, what is the original solitude, the original creation of Adam, who becomes two. So it's flesh of my flesh, bone of my bone. But the point, so the point is that the giving and receiving, is wholly embodied in each, but in a different order. And and so you could talk about uh, giving receivingly or receiving givingly. And this is, there are so many things, I mean, to be debated about and talked about here. There's a, uh, I, I, rec- I recommend this uh, work by Stephen Talbot at the Nature Institute in New York, for example, talking about how this order goes all the way down in terms of the, the sperm and the egg, the shape of the sperm and the egg and the kind of activity. They're both active, but in what sense? And what's the nature of that activity? I mean, it's so fascinating to see how this theology of the body goes all the way down, so to speak, and, and all the way up. Anyway, I'm going to uh, stop at, at that point. And then the, the final two points, I, I think, I, where are we on time? This is, we got started late, so. Yeah, But the two final points I wanna make in this regard are, uh, I mean, in light of this. So that's the, the essential principles of the basic structure of, of how we get to enter into this uh, question of uh, the body and gender. But the, uh, the, the, the final two points have to do then with, um, I mean, questions that are very intensely uh, emerged and in, in, uh, intensely debated today, and one is the question of objective disorder and so forth, where this order doesn't obtain and I'm not going to try to enter into the question of the genesis of this but to say uh, That it seems to me and we could talk about this that the language it seems to me the church simply can't abandon that language that that is essential that there, it has to do it's very closely tied to the nature of the human being and that, that point we have to learn to talk about something that is objectively disordered with, without, and this is the second point, uh, seeing that immediately to imply subjective guilt. It doesn't. There, 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 we get confused between the objective and subjective orders, and we all experience disorder in our lives in one, one form or another, uh, but the disorder, qua disorder, doesn't, doesn't uh, mean you no longer have dignity before God In fact, to say that something is objectively disordered, in a sense, uh, it it, it identifies a problem, but doesn't yet say what is the cause of this, which is something that has to be looked into. But why does the church, the church can't abandon this, it seems to me, if it does, this whole structure collapses. That is, the shape of the body no longer has an objective meaning, except insofar as I uh, uh, construct it or use it in this way rather than that, and ultimately, it's a denial of creation. Now, I could say a lot more about that. But it's, it's worth, we, we, we anyway, and, and, and it's not only a, a, a minor disorder, it's a disorder that goes very deep in the human being. As, as the texts that I didn't cite indicate, sexuality goes to the innermost part of the human being. So it's, it's a serious disorder, but I'll, I'll come to, have a final comment on that, but I just want to say we can't eliminate the question of objective disorder, but that's distinct from the question of imputing uh, 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 something less than dignity uh, to people who are afflicted with that uh, disorder. Uh, the, the, final, and the final thing is maybe in the discussion we can talk more about it, but there's, there's also been an emerging discussion now of spiritual friendship in this, con- in this gender discussion, and I, uh, and I only want to make one comment on that, and that is, of course, I mean, every human being needs friends. I mean, without friends, uh, 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 you, you don't survive without friendship. I mean, it's what enhances the human being, and that includes everybody. There's no question about it. What the principle is simply that that spiritual friendship, as it's being talked about today, cannot be viewed as simply a third... Alternative to consecrated virginity or marriage, in any way that would imply uh, would would imply exclusivity, permanence, and the kind of intimacy that is is proper to um, a marital relation. And that doesn't mean just not genital intimacy or explicit sex expression uh, expression of uh, explicitly sexual desires. It means uh, 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 in, in a relationship between uh, uh, spouses, looks, touches, uh, voice, uh, all kinds of ways of relating have a kind of intimacy that's proper to an intimacy that is complete and exclusive and so forth. And spiritual friendship. So the question that of chastity that emerges, of course, ch- chastity would be a part of a friendship, but chastity we have to deepen the sense of chastity. Chastity does not mean simply virtue with respect to the explicitly genital or sexual. That is, we have to realize the body is, remains integral to the human being. There is no such thing strictly as a spiritual friendship that isn't bodily. And, and, and so anyway, that's, those are just pointers. The final thing then I just conclude with I started with creation, I end with redemption in the sense that in this question of subjective or objective disorder and so on you know the the Creator God reveals a new dimension in his being with, uh, with redemption in Jesus Christ and incarnation and suffering and death and I think today we don't talk about this and we need to talk about it more. God suffered in Jesus Christ for the sake of human beings, and he suffered to the point of death. And, and that, the suffering, is part and parcel of, of uh, human existence. And Christianity doesn't pr- promise uh, no suffering. It promises some assistance in meaning and finding some meaning in joy and the promise of resurrection in suffering. And I mention that not because that we let the suffering be, but we do what Jesus did, which is he precisely identified with the objective order of, of, of sinners in the cosmos. I mean, the entire cosmos in a certain sense is under the influence of original sin, is under the power of sin. And he suffered, he entered it and embraced it and transformed it from inside. So accompanying and suffering with and so on are all integral to this. But, but we, we can't, uh, there, it seems to me we, we think too much of uh, Christianity, It's it, well this doesn't work or it doesn't bring success or immediate fulfillment or it makes me suffer. Uh, those are not genuinely Christian criteria. Anyway, so I'd be happy to take some questions now if there are any, if it isn't too late. And Professor Crawford as well, I'm sure. Thank you.
0: Thank you so much, Professor Crawford and Professor Schindler. If you have any questions, please raise your hand, and I'll come around with a microphone.
2: Hello. Uh, Thank you, Dr. Schindler. My question is uh, particularly about uh, the comments you made about language at the end, and and specifically the language of objective disorder. I I 100% agree with you that that, that the concept is, uh, is essential, but uh, Cardinal George said w- at one point that the church speaks in a language which is theological and philosophical to a culture that can only understand uh, psychological and political language, which seems to me that suggests that uh, while what's being said is true, uh, it's, it's next to impossible to make it be heard in a true way. Uh, I wonder if you might comment on that or, or say, say, say if you might agree or, or disagree or what. No, I, I mean, I, th- I, th- I think that's, uh, that's true it's hard to to communicate this i think the problem uh, things like objective disorder we don't our our culture is it's saturated with this view that objective order implies subjective uh defect or sickness or something and uh if on the other hand you're going to recognize dignity then you can't say that there's a disorder there i mean and all of us know that's false if you reflect on your experience and so on, right? And, I, and, and how it, that's a problem, I, I would say it, in any case, and I don't know the context. I mean, I have great respect for Cardinal George the late Cardinal George. George. And, uh, um, but it's something we have to work to transform because it's, it's vital for us to make sense of our experience. We do tend to psychologize evil and and speak in sociological and psychological language, I think that's not adequate. And that's part of what the church has, it seems to me, has to do in relation to the culture is communicate that.
3: Mm -hmm. Um, This is for Dr. Crawford, but I was particularly interested in the point that you made that the one of the big problems we have coming up against um, all of the arguments made in favor of homosexuality, homosexual marriage, and gender transformation um, is that we are a product of the modernity that we are trying to fight. I know that a lot of the modern opinions and a lot of the modern kind of constructions of gender identity and marriage come from a really long progression of essentially baby steps towards this. So you get things like utilitarianism enter social constructs like contraceptives that start changing kind of the meaning of marriage and eventually get to the natural conclusion, which is marriage doesn't mean anything and we can do whatever we want with it. So my question for you is in terms of, it seems like a really big wall (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) to fight hundreds of years of progressions of baby steps, especially since we are products now of these baby steps. And perhaps there's parts of us that even though we believe one thing, like you said, we, we can't bring ourselves to fight against this idea of progress and freedom because we've been raised in it. So my question for you is, what are your views on how we can, as Catholics, as a Catholic church, fight this in terms of not just arguing with people, but perhaps what changes need to take place to counteract all these steps towards this? Because it really does seem like a huge wall. And then when you talk about it like that, it's almost like this, Hopelessness of like, what can we do? You know? So, my questions for you are um, in your personal kind of opinion, and maybe what you've read or whatever, what do you think would be helpful in terms of fighting this wall that we face? Okay.
1: Um, um, So, um, uh, in in, uh, uh, this afternoon, um, I realized my talk was way too long, so I paired out um, certain things. One of the things I paired out was I was going to say, that my, my talk is diagnostic, and I have absolutely no idea in terms of um, how to, how to um, deal with the disease, if you will. Um, so I mean, the first thing, of course, is, um, um, and this is, you know, this is what I always say in, in my, my classes and whatnot, um, and that is, uh, the first thing is um, to come to grips with uh, what the problem actually is. And I think, um, and, and I think, um, you know, broadly speaking, um, we, we haven't arrived at that yet, um, because because these issues, uh, as Professor Schindler is pointing out in, in his way also, run so deep, and they're so much part of the way we, uh, and what I was trying to say in the beginning, the way we understand reality, um, that that um, the fight, as you put it. Um, Typically, we end up um, simply reusing categories that, in fact, are part of the problem. That that are part of the foundation that has led to the problem, to begin with. And so, um, so my answer um, to you, uh, you know, in a certain way, might seem like a non-answer, but it's actually not. And that is, um, if the question is what to do, um, then the question is to try and and arrive at a really. You know, And this takes a lot of work. This takes a lot of, of profound thinking. It takes prayer, obviously, and so on. But to, to try and arri- arrive at an adequate understanding of the truth of the matter, that's the first thing. Um, and the way in which the truth of the matter is, is constantly evaded, deferred, set aside. Uh, and then when that, when, when, when that happens and you can show, uh, and you, can, you, you have thought about this and prayed about it, and are able to uh, try to understand what the problem actually is, um, then um, sometimes it's possible to, um, you know, build in a small way, right? Um, like raise your family differently, for example, or, you know, run your school differently. So then it has to do with the question, or li- just living your life differently, um, and 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 so then it, it's it, it's a question of not you know, coming forward with, the, with some sort of blueprint and saying, okay, this is the way society really should go, but building organically from, from the bottom, as it were. Yeah.
0: Unfortunately, that's all the time we have this evening, but thank you all so much for coming, and please join me in thanking our speakers.